Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Good to have all of you here and all of you joining us on our live stream as we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of John. Um, I've got something to confess to you this morning. When, when the assignment uh, fell to me to preach this particular passage, this particular section, I honestly wasn't that excited. It's a section in the narrative that... Um, serves as a contextual bridge of sorts between chapter 11 and chapter 12 of John, sandwiched between two climactic and exciting events. Right beforehand, you have uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, okay? That, that's very exciting, um, very spectacular event. Who wouldn't want to preach that, okay? And then right after this, at the beginning of chapter 12, is Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. Also a very interesting, intriguing passage, fun passage to preach. Um, but I've seemingly drawn the short straw in the teaching schedule as we come to a section of John where, where he merely details a plot to kill Jesus and then some sing, seemingly passing comments about his geographical movements with his disciples and then he records about some people speculating whether Jesus is going to come to the Passover feast or not in Jerusalem. Now, now before you tune out and take a nap for the next 30 minutes or so, I want us all to read a passage of Scripture together from the pen of the Apostle Paul that's written to his younger disciple, Timothy. The words will be up on the screen. And let's read this out loud together, shall we? Join with me. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice that it doesn't say some scripture, or it doesn't say even most scripture. What does it say? All scripture is profitable this means that even this contextual bridge between chapter 11 and chapter 12 in the narrative of John is breathed out by God and is helpful for our spiritual growth. So armed with that knowledge, okay, and bolstered by this theological conviction, I dove into this passage this week and studied it, and now I'm actually excited to be your tour guide <laughs> through this passage, to shine my flashlight and a couple nuggets of truth that... God revealed to me as I studied, and God will reveal to us as we walk through this passage together. Two important truths that we can mine from this passage. And that's going to be our simple outline together as we go along. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline. Two truths. One concerning truth about humanity, and one comforting truth about God. Say those out loud with me. One concerning truth about humanity, and one comforting truth about God. All right. Well, if you were with us last week as we studied John's narrative together, you know that Jesus has just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. This is the only miracle that Jesus purposefully made more spectacular. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He didn't rush to his aid. No, he purposely stayed where he was across the Jordan River over, over in a region called Perea. He stayed there two more days so that by the time he the four, took the four-day journey to get back to um, Bethany, Lazarus was good and dead, 
okay? He had been dead for four days. Actually, it was a two-day journey. So he stayed two days, journeyed two days, and by the time he got there, Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. Now, we also learned that this waiting wasn't out of a lack of compassion. Because back up in verse 5 of chapter 11, we read that Jesus loved Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters. So his waiting couldn't have been out of a lack of concern or a lack of love for his friends or, or the fact that he didn't care in some way. No, Jesus deeply cares and he waited to help his friends for the very intentional purpose of revealing his glory and his power over death. Jesus says in verse 40 to Mary, Lazarus' sister, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And what's also interesting to note about this miracle is the attention that Jesus intentionally draws to himself while he does it. Before in John's narrative, we've seen Jesus intentionally keep his, his miracles on the DL, you know, on the down low. And the first miracle we come to in the narrative was what? You remember? Yeah, yeah. Somebody likes wine. Good. Um, the, the changing of water into Wine, that's the first miracle that we come to. And who knows about it? Does the wedding feast know about it? The, the whole party, wedding party? No, just Jesus' mother, a few servants, and the disciples. That's the only people that know about it. It's kind of done behind the scenes. You know, not too long ago, we, we saw Jesus heal a, a man born blind there in Jerusalem. And, and remember how he did it? He, he spit and made mud, mud, put it on the guy's eyes, and then told him to go away to wash in the pool of Siloam so that when the guy received his sight, where was Jesus? Nowhere to be found. He's keeping a low profile. But this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is much different. It totally breaks with the low-profile um, mode, mode that Jesus has been in previously up till this point. When Jesus does this miracle, he doesn't do it quietly. No, we read this in verse 43. We read this last week. When he said these things, he cried out in what? A loud voice for everyone to hear, Lazarus, come out. He doesn't do it with a whisper. He doesn't do it quietly. He doesn't do it behind the scenes. He's calling attention to this. Lazarus, come out. He wants to make sure that the entire crowd that's there, that, and this was the fourth day, this was when the crowds would have come to really mourn Lazarus' loss. He wants them to know exactly what's going on. This is interesting. Hold on to that thought, okay? We're going to come back to it. Now, let, let's pick up the narrative in verse 45, where, Jesus, or where John turns our attention to the fallout of this particular miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. So what's the first direct effect of this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead? What is it? It's not rhetorical. Yeah, some people in that crowd believe in Jesus. They put their faith in him. And the text tells us that they were Jews who had come with Mary, which should jog our memory back to verses 18 and 19 in chapter 11, where we read this. Bethany was near what town? Jerusalem. 
or what city, I should say. Bethany's the town. This is the city. Bethany is near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So these Jewish people who put their faith in Jesus here have come from where? The big city, Jerusalem. They've taken the two-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethany to grieve with Mary and Martha over Lazarus. They live at the center of Jewish worship. They live in the hub of the Jewish religious establishment and are part of the crowd of witnesses to this very public and spectacular miracle. Now, let me just show you a map so you can kind of get the context. You can see how close Bethany is to Jerusalem. It's just over the Mount of Olives on the other side to the east. Easy walking distance. And many of this crowd of witnesses to Lazarus' miracle put their faith in Jesus. That's the, the good part, the good fallout. That's not the only effect of this miracle. John goes on to say in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Dun, dun, dun. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So while some witnesses to this miracle put their faith in Jesus, others go back to Jerusalem and tell the religious establishment what had happened. Tattletales. <laughs> Whose loyalty was to the Pharisees, to the religious leadership. They tattle on Jesus and tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done. Now, how did the Pharisees respond? Did they rejoice at this astounding miracle, this astounding sign from God that somebody has been brought back from the dead? You're right, no. <laughs> Good job, Mary Catherine. No. What did they do? What did they become concerned about? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They perceive Jesus as a threat here, don't they? They're concerned about Jesus becoming too popular, Jesus becoming too powerful, and thereby losing their power and popularity, right? Their own, they're, they're concerned about losing their own social standing as respected members of Jewish society. And then the Romans will come, away, come and take away our place and our nation. They're concerned about losing influence, position, power, authority. They've ingratiated themselves with the, the Roman overlords. And if this situation gets out of hand, they're afraid that these powerful Roman authorities are going to come and take away their place in their nation. They're going to lose their placement as rulers and authorities over the nation. We'll lose our jobs. We'll lose our titles. We'll lose our position. We'll lose our honor. We'll lose our glory. And isn't it ironic? Jesus has just revealed what? His glory. His glory. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Lazarus, come out. He has power over death. And what are these religious leaders concerned about here? Their own glory. Such irony. 
And this brings us to the first nugget of truth that I'd like to shine my flashlight on as your tour guide through Scripture this morning, and that's this, a concerning truth about humanity. Say this out loud with me. We are far too preoccupied with our own glory. We are far too preoccupied with our own glory, and it often blinds us from seeing the glory of God. Another way of saying this very concerning truth is this. We are all idolaters. We are all idolaters. Every one of us, instead of rightly worshiping Jesus and giving glory to him, reflecting his glory even, like the Pharisees, we tend to worship things like popularity and power and position, seeking to glorify ourselves. And here's the reality. When Jesus' glory shows up in all its splendor, It forces us to ask the question, whose glory are we living for? Jesus' glory shows up in all its splendor in this narrative and asks the question, whose glory are you living for? In his Sermon on the Mount, which we read in other Gospels, Jesus warned his disciples against the dangers of idolatry, he said things like this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you value most in life will become what you worship. And he would go on to warn them that they could not serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You can't serve both. You can't be worshiping idols, worshiping God. They're contrary to each other. Don't wrap your lives around money or popularity or position or power. Your heavenly Father is going to take care of you. He loves you, so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. One of the main messages of the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. What does it mean? Have you paused to take a time out and say, what does it mean to seek his kingdom and his righteousness? I find it helpful to think of the opposite of those things to define it. What would be the opposite of seeking his kingdom? It's not rhetorical. Say it out loud. My kingdom, right? Our kingdom. If you're not seeking his kingdom, whose kingdom are you seeking? You're seeking your kingdom, popularity, power, position. And to pray your kingdom come automatically means my kingdom go. If you're not seeking his kingdom, whose kingdom are you seeking? Yours. And if you're not seeking his righteousness, whose righteousness are you seeking? Your righteousness. In other words, you're self-righteously concerned about your own reputation and constantly seeking to justify yourself, usually by comparison to other people who you don't deem as righteous as you are, instead of comparing yourself to God and humbly recognizing that God is the only one who's truly righteous and that you desperately need a Savior. You need His righteousness, not yours. So it's always his kingdom or my kingdom, his righteousness or my righteousness, his glory or my glory. You see the contrast? 
And when Jesus comes on the scene, as he, as he does here in this narrative, in all of his splendor, he forces the question. He forces us to choose. There is no middle ground. When he's, his splendor is revealed in all its glory, it forces us to decide whose glory am I living for? Whose glory am I going to live for? Some, as we see in this passage, see the glory of God and seek first his kingdom. But others have no concern for God's glory. They have more concern for theirs. And what do they do? They seek first their own kingdom. Because as fallen humans, we are far too preoccupied with our own glory. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So the Pharisees are all freaking out about Jesus doing this miracle because of their idols of their idols are being threatened. Their idols of popularity and power and control are being threatened. But the high priest, a guy named Caiaphas, pipes up here and basically tells his fellow religious leaders, guys, 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 calm down. Don't get your loincloths in a wad here. Calm down. All we have to do is kill one guy and we can save the entire nation. All we have to do is kill one guy, guys. And then John adds this astounding little postscript here about Caiaphas in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Who's that a reference to? That's a reference to Gentiles. That's a reference to you and me if you're not Jewish. <laughs> so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So everything is coming to a head here, isn't it? We're on the cusp of Passion Week, when Jesus will be crucified, buried, and raised. It's all about to go down. And the raising of Lazarus is the event that pushes the religious leaders over the edge. They sense they're losing control, they're losing power, and they decide to put a definitive end to Jesus. In essence, the raising of Lazarus from the dead becomes the beginning of the end for Jesus. Now, we will soon learn that in John's narrative, the end <laughs> of Jesus is actually just the beginning. It's actually just the beginning. That's for a different sermon, okay? We'll save that for later. And what's so beautifully ironic here is this. Unknowingly, Unknowingly, the evil hearts of these religious leaders put into action the good and previous redemptive plan of God. Their murderous plot enacts God's wonderful plan. Isn't this incredible? Isn't this ironic? And while Caiaphas thinks he's the one who's ingeniously authoring this murderous plot, God is actually the one who is authoring the redemption of the world and is simply using Caiaphas as a puppet. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. 
The evil hearts of these religious leaders set in motion the plan that God has determined before time began. Jesus is the Lamb of God, planned to be slain before the foundations of the world were laid. And Jesus is now going to die for the nation. One man for the nation, just like Caiaphas said. Not just for the Jews, but also for all people everywhere, you and me. Precisely because of what these religious leaders are plotting to do with their evil schemes. Isn't this ironic? Caiaphas is not the one in control here, is he? Who is in control? God is in perfect control. And right here is the second nugget of truth that I'd like to shine my flashlight on and observe together. Okay? Remember, we've already covered one concerning truth about humanity. What's the next one? One comforting truth about God. Say this out loud with me. He is in total control of every circumstance. God is in total control of every circumstance. On the surfaces of things, it might seem like things are spinning out of control for Jesus. I mean, he's got a contract out on his life here. But Jesus, God the Son, in perfect communion and in lockstep with God the Father, is in total control of every circumstance. The timing of the raising of Lazarus from the dead is not coincidental, my friends. It's very, very intentional. Passover is just around the corner. Jesus performs this miracle at this precise time, at this precise location, for a precise reason. He is intending to get himself killed. People aren't taking his life from him. No, he is laying it down. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. If he waltzes into Bethany, right next to Jerusalem, two miles away, with a whole crowd of Jerusalemites, I don't know if that's what you call them, I'm going to call them that, are there witnessing it. He knows exactly what's going to happen if he does this very public and spectacular miracle in front of this significant crowd. He's knows what's going to happen if he draws attention to himself and cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And everybody goes, and sees the glory of God. He knows that he's just kicked the hornet's nest. He knows that he's just set in motion the plan that he and God the Father had initiated before the world was even created. Passover is only about six weeks away, and Jesus knows that in saving his friend from death, he has just guaranteed his own. And he knows that in laying down his life, he will bring life to the world. God the Son, in perfect concert with God the Father, is in total control of all of this. It's beautiful. And what the religious leaders intend for evil, God purposes for good. What they mean for shame, God will redeem for glory. What they think is crucifixion, God will turn into what? Resurrection. Our God is sovereign over every single circumstance, and he can bring light from darkness, order from chaos, fullness from emptiness, beauty from ashes, life from death, and he can bring about resurrection from crucifixion, my friends. He will overcome evil with good. And in the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones, he will make everything sad come untrue. This is what he did for Lazarus. 
It's what God is about to do for Jesus in our narrative. It's what he's doing for the whole world as the gospel spreads through Jesus' followers like you and me. And, he's, and, and hear this, it's what he's doing in every circumstance right now for you and for me. I don't know what each of you are facing this morning. I don't know what, you've carried, what baggage you've carried into our service today. I don't know what you're holding as you watch this on your TV screen at home. But here's what I do know. Even when this world is seemingly spinning out of control, you can bank on this fact. God is in total control over every single circumstance. Say that with me. God is in total control over every single circumstance. In spite of the darkness, in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the ugliness, in spite of the injustice, in spite of the evil that is all around us, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So no matter what you're facing, hear this, God loves you. And he's working his redemptive plan in those circumstances, whether you can see it yet or not, you can trust him. He's got this. He's working his redemptive plan for your good and for his glory. And it would be fitting to put a bow on the sermon right here, pray and call it a day, but we're not through the passage yet. Verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So in the wake of Lazarus being raised from the dead, some people believe, right? Remember? Some people believe. Others enact a plot to murder Jesus. And a third effect of the miracle is what? Jesus basically goes into hiding along with his disciples. They re retreat to a place called Ephraim. Let me show you where this is on the map. It's a village up in the mountains about 12 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, right on the border of the region of Samaria. Now, Jewish, one thing you need to know is that Jewish people would avoid, if at all possible, they would avoid traveling to Samaria or through Samaria. They would intentionally go around it. Show, up, show the next slide here. They would intentionally go around Samaria. They would dip down into the Jordan River Valley. So the two, two main hubs of population, Jewish population, were up, up in Galilee and down in Judea. And when they would travel to and from the feast, they wouldn't go through Samaria. Where would they go? They would go around, they'd dip down into the Jordan River Valley, go around Samaria, even though it's the longer route, and go to Jericho, then come up the road to the mountainous area of Jerusalem. So they actually go down, then back up, just to avoid Samaria. So basically, Ephraim isn't on the way to anywhere, okay? Nobody from Jerusalem is going to go visit Ephraim, and it is a great place to lay low for about six weeks. And while Jesus is laying low in Ephraim, what's happening in and around Jerusalem? Lazarus is happening. Lazarus is happening. You know, for six weeks leading up to Passover, what is Lazarus doing? He's living. 
He's living. He's heading into town to buy milk, goat's milk and bread, you know, creating quite a stir. Hey, isn't that the guy that was dead last week? Yeah, I smelled him. You know, he's creating quite this stir. And throngs of people from Jerusalem are probably walking two miles out to Bethany just to see it for themselves. Lazarus is traveling into town. You know, he's probably on the front page of the Jerusalem Times. He's probably working the... the um, talk show circuit for every news outlet in Judea, so to speak. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing with this miracle. He was purposefully paving the way for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover feast, for a crowd of people to welcome him as king, and also, all in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and also paving the way for his crucifixion. Paving the way for the perfect redemptive plan of God. Jesus has all of this planned out. God is in total control of every circumstance that we read about here. And as the time for the Passover approaches, people begin to ask the question. They begin to wonder. Let's, let's read verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The anticipation is building, isn't it? What's going to happen next? Well, You'll have to come back for our journey through the Gospel of John to find out. But in the meantime, as the band comes back up, just remember this. If you're going to take away one thing, remember this. If God can make a murderous high priest prophesy about his redemptive plan, he can weave every convoluted and confusing circumstance of your, of your life together for your good and for his glory. Our response questions, if you're in a city group and want to talk about them, are going to be sent out via social media this week. But would you join me in prayer as we close our time together? Father, thank you for this text, this seemingly insignificant bridge between two um, important chapters in John's narrative, two important events. But in it, we see your glory. In it, we see you know, the, the hearts of, of men, and we see a reflection of our hearts and the hearts of the Pharisees that we are glory seekers, but oftentimes seeking our glory rather than yours. And we see your sovereignty at play, your sovereignty at work, how you can weave all things together. And we marvel, and we're comforted. Because oftentimes, thing, life is confusing to us. We don't understand what on earth you're doing, God. Through the brokenness, through the pain, through the uh, just circumstances that are so jacked up so many times. But we trust you. We trust you that you are good. We know that you're in control. We know that you're weaving a beautiful tapestry, even though we can only see the underside of it with all the knots and, and loose strings, loose ends. But on the top, one day, we trust that we will see what you're weaving together is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And we long 
for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. May that day come soon and may we trust in the goodness, in your goodness while we wait.